everybody. Welcome back to the Stack Overflow podcast, a place to talk all things software and technology. I'm your host, Ben Popper, Director of Content over here at Stack Overflow, joined as I often am by my colleague and collaborator, Ryan Donovan. How you doing, Ryan? I'm good. How you doing, Ben? Pretty good. So we have a great guest coming on today, Louis Brandy, who is the VP of Engineering over at Rockset. We're going to be chatting about some things that have been big on the blog and the podcast recently, like vector search and AI ML. But I'm also super excited for the chance to talk a little bit about spam fighting, which is something that, you know, it's this, this giant war, this giant effort that's always happening in the background, the bajillions of emails getting sent and blocked and slipped into your inbox every day um, to talk about, yeah, maybe how some of these emerging disciplines, real-time analytics and AI with vector combined with spam fighting. So Lewis, welcome to the Stack Overflow podcast. It is great to be here. Thank you for having me. Of course. So for folks who are listening, just give them a quick background. How did you end up at the role you're at today? And, and yeah, a little bit of a short CV, if you don't mind, of some of the stuff you've done in your career. Absolutely. So I will give you the criminally short version. My, my first role out of school, I was actually doing face detection and face recognition. So I started off as a software engineer, like in the ML world, pre-deep learning. So this is back in the, the dark era, right? Yeah, yeah. I actually got out of that business. I sort of transitioned away from that. So that company was eventually acquired by Google, but I didn't go to Google. I went to Facebook. So I worked at Facebook for about 10 years, roughly in thirds. So that first third of that was spam fighting. This is the spam fighting era for me. I worked primarily on infrastructure for fighting spam. So I wasn't fighting spam directly like every day. I was more building the infrastructure that we would use to fight spam. So I have a lot of opinions on like, how do you build a scalable spam fighting system? What do you need for scalable spam fighting? That actually ties into real time and some of this AI stuff we'll be talking about. So it's serendipitous kind of Mm -hmm. background. So back in the old days before ML, does that mean you were hard coding rules about what a nose and a face and an ears and eyes look like to, to do face detection or? No, we were doing like boosted trees type stuff for mm-hmm. face detection and face recognition. So it was still machine learning, but it was right. sort of, it was in the kind of decision tree world, not the yeah. neural network world. I'll be honest with you. Like I'm an AI implementer through my career. I've never been in like a scientist. So gotcha. getting into the theory of it all, I don't really know, but at least not enough that I would pretend to be an expert on. But I've done a lot of the implementation of these kinds of like evaluate, like how many frames a second can I get out of this kind of inference versus that kind of inference? That was sort of right. more my thing than the other way gotcha, around. Gotcha. Okay, I interrupted. Please take us through the rest yeah. of this short career survey. I then did a bunch of core infra at Facebook. So I, mm-hmm. I went from like spam fighting infra to core infra. And, and here I meant more just general stuff. So I was building libraries for services. So I worked on like Facebook's RPC system thrift and service routing and, and things like that, load balancing. And when you're doing these core libraries, my baby, my example service was always the spam fighting services, though, because those mm-hmm. are the ones I knew well. So we're building libraries for services, but I was a service owner, a former service owner, so I had a lot of experience. And I, I did things like, um, I was doing a lot of our core C++ libraries at Facebook. For example, I was in the C++ standards committee and did a lot of like core library stuff. This leads me then eventually to Rockset. So Rockset is a real-time analytics and search platform. It is, we're adding vector search. We can talk, we're going to talk about this. These fields are seem distinct. For example, we talk about spam fighting. We talk about AI and vector search. We can talk about real-time analytics. They're actually much closer than you'll think. Like architecturally, these systems all look very similar. Once you hmm. peel off some of the top level, like first class citizens, they look very similar under the hood. But that's what I'm doing today. So yeah, I'm the VP of Eng at Rockset. We are a real-time analytics platform. So we're doing, you know, again, I don't know how familiar people are with the various buzzwords. It can sound very buzzwordy if you don't know what any of these words mean. 
basically very high rate ingest with very low data latency so that you can query recent fresh data as quickly as possible. And obviously fast queries are super important in these kinds of systems. Mm -hmm. And that ties very quickly into vector questions and AI questions. And for spam fighting, this kind of stuff is super important. Like low data latency is super critical for spam fighting. Not all mm -hmm. problems require real time. So then obviously we're maybe not the best solution. If you don't, if you're querying yesterday's data, we may not be the right thing for you. <laughs> but anyway, that's the, that's the short version of my life story. Yeah. Very cool. As uh, somebody who's had an email address for, you know, 20 plus years, the battle against spam, how has that changed over time? So it's funny because email spam in particular is its own sub domain and sub art that I actually don't know mm -hmm. a ton about. I mean, I know a lot for an outsider, mm -hmm. but I wouldn't want to answer your question like a true insider. I never have fought email spam. We had people at Facebook. So obviously, Facebook didn't have email spam. Like that wasn't mm -hmm. a thing that we dealt right. with at Facebook. Right. So I'm dealing more with like bots and account takeovers and mm -hmm. this kind of abuse and posts like bot, you know, these kinds of things more yeah. at Facebook. Well, we, we have a blog too, and we get a lot of comment spam. Is that more? Yeah. So that's much more that that's yeah. my life. Yes. Yeah. Comment spam is much more of, of the things we've dealt with. I want to hear about battling comment spam or sign up user spam. But I also want to say that my favorite, however many years it lasted, it didn't last forever, was when Facebook decided that it would cost a dollar to send anybody a private message because that would obviously <laughs> remove you know, a lot of the ability to do spam at scale. But as a journalist, that was the best thing that ever happened to me because I could reach out to any potential source for a dollar and get right into their inbox. It was heaven. I was loving it. So <laughs> I have no comment. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I, it's very effective. Like, I mean, if you want to talk about the theory of spam fighting, like literally costing spammers money, very right. rarely directly like it's usually it's indirectly costing them money is how you beat spam like that is you it is a financial war you're in mm. so obviously charging them a dollar to send spam is extremely effective at killing spam it's in the yeah. most direct way possible so yeah tell us some of your favorite stories or anecdotes from your time battling chat or bot spam and then we can take it from there maybe to some of what you've been working on at rockset uh, for clients and the lessons learned from that past how they apply now yeah here's what i would say about spam fighting, the people who do it, like the people who are there, like dealing with it all the time, it's like this weird, thankless work where the more successful you are, the less people know about what you're doing every day. So it, you're built a little different if you love that stuff. And again, I'm, I got to build the infrastructure more so. In some ways, I get to build stuff. So I felt lucky in a, in a sense where they were just tearing things down. They were tearing other people's crap out of things. My favorite story, I think, is um, there was a very successful attack that had happened over some years. I mean, at the time was successful. And it was, they built this very clever, it looked like YouTube. They had a way to make a scam that looked like YouTube. And I was wondering how anyone could fall for this. And then when I saw the link and I saw the page it went to and I saw how it worked, I was like, oh my God, like anyone would fall for this. Like it's so clever, the yeah. scams. I remember having this, this very visceral moment of like, this is just enough where I might not fall for this, but like literally anyone in my family would, would fall for this. It was very clever. And this is back in the days where you could, something called self-XSS. I don't know if people know about this kind of stuff. You've probably heard of XSS, but you probably don't know about self-XSS. That's where they would trick you into pasting JavaScript into your own address bar and running it. Mm. And they would be like, hey, prove you're not a human. Click on all the robots. And then when you're done, press Control-A, Control-V, Enter which is like select your address bar and paste. 
And then you'd run a bunch of JavaScript in your address bar. And now you're, you're, you're hacked. Your, your account's been taken over in various, various <laughs> ways. It's extremely clever. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I remember just looking at this going, oh, like on a bad day, I bet you a lot of people would fall for this. Even savvy people would fall for this. Yeah. So browsers have improved a lot here, by the way. So this is why, by the way, you have to enable development tools in your browser. It's not on by default because it's actually pretty easy to prey on people via development if they're on by default. So that's one story. We could do more, but that's yeah, a good yeah. one. You're right. The The browser has improved. It, it seems like there was a lot of attacks that were just like giving you a wonky link that would run SQL or JavaScript or something and just like, that shouldn't happen from the address bar. Yeah, exactly. Um, I don't understand how the unsubscribe flow is not constantly exploited. I feel like every day I'm trying to unsubscribe from something that I'm tired of. I end up at a random website and I'm clicking a bunch of buttons and then hitting OK. And it's like, what if this was like the whole unsubscribe was just, you know, like a flow to get to get me, yeah, to accept something or download something, you know, like I go through so mindlessly through all these unsubscribe flows. So I haven't kept up to this, but there was a period of time where unsubscribe as a general rule wasn't was the opposite of that. It was a yeah. subscribe button. Like mm. unsubscribing meant your email was active. Like, like I'm sure this is still true with like relatively shady parts of the internet. But if you go click on unsubscribe, like, oh, that's active. Congratulations, your email address is worth more now when I sell right. it. And <laughs> right. so I'm wary of unsubscribe links. Like right. to this day, I'm still wary. I don't, I don't know how it feels today because I, I don't click them anymore. I don't click right. unsubscribe. You're links. just a block and filter. Is yeah, I just filter. Yeah. I filter. <laughs> so with the new vector databases and, and generative AI, obviously that, that makes it easier to kind of understand what spam looks like. But are attacks getting more sophisticated? Is it getting harder to kind of like, you're able to squash one attack and they get a little better? So my take on this is that because I, I have this background, I've been talking to people here now where I get to talk to a lot of other companies who are trying to deal with problems like this or fraud or spam or things like that in this space. And the thing I quickly realized is this is extremely bespoke, mm. meaning your website, in this case, it doesn't have to be, but in general, like has a flow and there's a reason spammers are there. The tools and the methods and a lot of things are the same, but not, it's very customized. Mm-hmm. And the only reason that makes sense is because a lot of these places are big enough now where the financial rewards are enough that it makes sense. There's literally a person somewhere writing code to trick your users into doing what I want them to do to make me money. And that's, that works. Mm-hmm. That's scary, like I think, because it's not so easy to generalize always. Obviously, some, there's places where it's very easy to generalize, but not always. So in that sense, I think it's extremely sophisticated. But I'll be honest, like even we're talking 10 years ago now that we're talking about the self-XSS stuff and the, mm-hmm. this tech I was talking about earlier, that stuff was shocking to me. I was like, well, this is way beyond. Like, this isn't just like shady.com. Don't click the evil link. Right. This is way more clever than that. So yeah, mm-hmm. I, I think there's without a doubt, it's more sophisticated than it's ever been. And to be fair, the tools to fight it also are. And it's this interesting right. game where I can kill 99% of it, it and my site still feels gross, even if mm-hmm. I'm wiping out 99%. And so it's a tricky problem. Yeah. I was listening to a story yesterday, right, about the idea that Gen AI might, you know, be a powerful tool for enabling like a business email compromise because, you know, you could feed it, you know, a, a big spreadsheet of LinkedIn profiles and it could send each person a more personalized and targeted email versus, you know, kind of one generic spear phishing. But, you know, right, it feels like the opposite is also true. You know, I'm sure with, like you said, real-time data analytics, 
you know, you might be able to spot an influx of similarly worded things arriving to a system at the same time and therefore alert mm -hmm. people. I'm terrified of this. Yeah, yeah. We're in a brave new world because I don't even know what spam is anymore, right? In this world. <laughs> like at right. some point, your spam is so personalized, it's useful. Right. right. Then what is it even at that point? I don't even know what that is. Right. Spam kind of implies that it's automated, but what if it's H1 is personalized, yeah. it's not even spam. <laughs> like what if you spam comment useful comments to my blog? Like what what does that even mean? I don't even know. Like what if you drown the internet in useful content? Some of the very fundamental principles start to break down. Like I don't even right. know what we call this anymore. This is a fair exchange. Yeah. You make my blog look very popular. We have a lot of really <laughs> engaged and thoughtful yeah. commenters and they all have at least one affiliate link. But you know, I, power yeah. to them. I've seen in the last few months, spam comments go from like, what a great blog, and then a janky link to having like a gen AI summary of the article. And it's yeah. obviously not somebody actually commenting, but you're right, they're, they're going to get to a point where it's just, right. give me a good comment. Exactly. And I mean, you know, you can imagine a site like Reddit, like, it's very easy, I would imagine to build accounts for free that have very good reputation. Like historically, if I was Reddit, obviously I never worked at Reddit, mm -hmm. but like I would be tracking the user's reputation over time. Like new users or users that write low quality comments, I can action them much more aggressively than mm -hmm. people who write big, beautiful things that get lots of upvotes. Mm -hmm. But now I suspect it's super easy to build a relatively decent mm -hmm. behaving robot mm -hmm. on Reddit. Right. Like by the thousands. So I'm terrified. This is a very interesting idea. It's the benign bot who's cultivating. It's kind of like the sleeper yeah, agent, you exactly. know, cultivating good karma for a while before you activate them. It's cheap, <laughs> right? It's cheap to increase all my robots' reputation and then have them go evil. Mm -hmm. You know, like they, they go evil later. All that means is I plant seeds now, and then every day I'm planting, you know, new new bots that are accruing reputation, and I'm harvesting old bots with high reputation and I can do that forever, right? Like, so that's a, a very straightforward model that is terrifying. Mm, I like it. Yeah, I'm worried. I'm worried about us. Yeah. So in the pitch, we talked a little bit of how you know about vector search. You know, you're at this unique intersection of real-time data infrastructure, high-powered anomaly detection, machine learning. Tell yeah. us about some of the things you've been working on at Rockset that you think are interesting that you can discuss publicly. You know, what is the tech stack? You know, how are you helping clients? You know, like just a little bit of like the things that are motivating for you, you know, and I guess it's also interesting is this your first gig as a, as a VP of engineering or was that something you also did at Facebook? So I was director of engineering at Facebook for a bunch of years. So, so yeah, I've been doing sort of various kinds of management and team building and stuff like that for a while. To answer your other question, so, so Rockset was born in a sort of real-time analytics space. And in the world of real-time analytics, as you have data, it's flowing in constantly. I want to query that data. I want to query fresh data is the real-time component of this. Often I want to query it quickly, so I need to index this data so indexing and query of freshness is a tricky trade-off, right? The more I index your data, the, the longer it takes for that index to materialize and be, make it queryable. And so the, the heart of real time is trying to get all this correct and the trade-off right. So your data latency is really low, your queries are very fast. Hopefully, you know, don't spend any money. Uh, obviously, there are different architectures in this space. So you can index data slower and more efficiently and build more of a throughput optimized system. But then it ends up, you know, you get like kind of the extreme big data systems, the big queries or hives of the world where you sort of like, you can query yesterday's partition. And those are built to be very efficient per byte, you know, in the way you're running them. And so we live in this space of real time. So, so we're up here where, you know, if hive is way too slow, you want to query last minute's data, last 10 minute data. That's the space we live in. Uh, Rockset also has, has built from the beginning to be very mutable, meaning 
a lot of these systems are append only. You dump logs into them. There's there's no updates or upserts. It's only inserts, basically, right? Insert only workloads. Mm-hmm. So mutability is very important within Rockset as well. And this matters. So we're going to get to this when we talk about vectors because vectors actually are kind of an extreme version of a lot of these problems. Meaning, again, I don't know how much people know about vector algorithms, but Vector search indexes are extremely, at least historically, they're these very monolithic static things. You take all your vectors, you organize them, and it takes forever. It takes, you know, you take a million vectors, it takes you tens of seconds or more of intense CPU work to organize all these vectors into some structure. You can now search that structure relatively efficiently. But if you add a new vector, there's no way to add a new vector to it and preserve the goodness. Every time you add a vector kind of naively to it, it ruins this fast search. Property. You have to re-index. So you have to re-index. And that's yeah. this other, that's this big giant expensive asynchronous thing. So it's actually like the real-time indexing problem, like on steroids. Like it's literally the same problem of, well, I can index more frequently, that's going to be more expensive, or I can try to come up with ways to do incremental indexing so that you, you know your fresh data is is available quickly. This is this is what real-time databases are, this is what we do. And this is why these systems actually end up like a a vector database built just for vectors and a real-time analytics database, they're like way more similar. Mm-hmm. You are naturally led towards very similar architectures for the same reason. It's one of the reasons why you know, real-time databases are adding vector search capabilities is because it's a natural fit to the architecture we already have in place. Mm-hmm. So what's, what is the, the sort of architecture that you had that lets you sort of do that really fast re-index or append so the first thing to understand is Rockset is built like fully managed. So we get to be clever in a way that's because you don't have to manage it. We're not sending software to you. We're we're managing. Mm. And so things are split up. Like there's multiple services involved with your Rockset instance, right? And we, we're, we're running fully managed. And so basically you have a, an ingestion pathway and there's a compute storage separation, which is the first step of this. So in other words, when you're ingesting data, there's a bunch of compute happening and it's writing to disaggregated storage. We also have a compute-compute separation. So in other words, you are ingesting into one pool of compute machines that are writing to storage, but you can be querying with a different set of machines. You can actually have more than two of these. You can have many compute tiers aimed at one storage tier. So a big part of this process is I have essentially... To be fair, I don't have to set it up this way, but it would typically be set up this way, mm-hmm. is that you have dedicated ingest compute. So essentially, I have the ability to run ingest compute however I'd like, and it's to some degree isolated from any query compute. And therefore, I can do, for example, this idea of like, if I have to do an asynchronous, I prefer not to do asynchronous rebuilds of the index, but if I have to, I can, mm-hmm. because it won't affect, for example, my queries, right, that are... You have this kind of like, okay, I'll have this big giant batch job I need to run on my database. I really don't want to do that during query spikes, for example. So let's run that in the evening. Like all these problems don't exist in Rock. Mm -hmm. So we can do this continuously. And we Mm -hmm. can manage, for example, the ingest CPU to be throughput optimized if necessary while keeping the query CPUs latency optimized because these are in different pools of machines. But okay, that's a short version, I think. That's one of the things we do to kind of try to make the ingest as good as possible. So this gets into the, again, I, I hinted at the theory here, which is like this throughput versus latency optimized systems. You, mm-hmm. It's the same system, basically, but sometimes you want to optimize for throughput and sometimes you want to optimize for latency. Often queries, you optimize for latency and for ingest, you're optimizing for throughput. It doesn't have to be that way, but, but that's typically one of the ways it gets set up. And that, that's what lets me, for example, do these, these incremental. We also, for whatever it's worth, have put enormous amount of effort into not needing to do asynchronous rebuilds of index. So 
incremental indexing insofar as you can do it, we, we do as aggressively as possible. Right. And so this often becomes a very interesting algorithmic challenge. Like, mm-hmm. you know, if I have a bunch of strings flowing in and you want to do fuzzy string matching, how do I incrementally index new strings so that fuzzy string matching can happen? Vectors present a massive problem in this space. I actually think it's one of the very hard problems in vector search that people don't appreciate, which is the incremental indexing problem. But again, so we spend a lot of time as well making sure that we can, you know, incremental indexing is as first class a citizen as possible. So what would help people understand the incremental indexing problem for vector search? Oh, yeah. There are different ways to answer this. For computer science people, my answer here is like, imagine you build a binary search tree, a balanced binary search tree, and then you want to add random new elements to it. What, what will happen is it will become unbalanced. This is the moral equivalent of exactly why vector search indexes can't be incrementally updated. They basically, the tree, so to speak, becomes unbalanced, and therefore you go from a logarithmic lookup time to a linear lookup time. That's mm. roughly the problem with vector indices. It's actually worse often with these vector lookups because higher dimensional spaces tend to degrade faster than lower dimensional spaces. It's the so-called curse of dimensionality. So it actually deteriorates quicker often. I don't know what quicker means necessarily, but in some mm-hmm. sense quicker. And this is why it's very hard to incrementally index most of the state-of-the-art vector search algorithms. We should be clear, by the way, I don't think we made this clear. When I say vector search algorithms, I always mean approximate search. Exact vector search is actually like known impossible problem. In low dimensions, you can do like space partitioning and you can get faster than... So sorry, to be even more clear, I can always scan all the vectors. Like, so I can always do a linear lookup. I can compare you to every other vector and decide who's closest. So that's, that's the baseline. It's brute force, right? To do better than that, in low dimensions for vectors, you can do better. In high dimensions, you really can't. You can't mm-hmm. do better. Again, cursive dimensionality. Basically, for high dimensional vectors, your only chance of doing better than brute force is these approximate algorithms, these approximate right. nearest neighbor algorithms. And these yeah. are the ones that will deteriorate very quickly with incremental addition. Yeah, this is really interesting. We were actually, Ryan and I were just on a call yesterday with some of the folks at MongoDB talking about adding vector search to Atlas. And they were you know, discussing a lot of similar problems. They were saying, we can't use K nearest neighbor. We have to, as you pointed out, do something that's a bit of an abstraction of that. And then also, I think maybe to a bit of what you were saying, they were saying, you know, one of the benefits we're trying to add is that you can have, you know, two different kinds of data sitting side by side, your vector search, which as you point out, takes a really long time to index, but then maybe also some of your ordinary unstructured data. And so you can have this yes. mix of semantic and lexical search, and then sometimes it's actually more effective yes. than right adding every new thing as a vector, right? So 1000%. In fact, I have a screed that I, I need to like write up. I want to make a blog post. <laughs> There's at least two really hard problems in vector search. And this is after you solve the problem of just searching back. Like there's this really fun algorithmic PhD problem of approximate nearest neighbor searches in vectors. Right. But even after that, even if you go download a really cool hierarchical navigable small worlds library and you, you solve that problem, you run face first into two very hard problems that I think are super critical. The first is this incremental index one, the one we didn't talk about. And the second is precisely the one you mentioned, which I think mostly in the industry is being called like metadata filtering. Mm. I think us and MongoDB probably wouldn't call it metadata filtering because that's just what we do. Like what we already do is filter your data. Like that's the where clause of a SQL query is filtering, right? That's what it is. Right. 
But in a vector world, it's like this additional thing you add on where like, yeah, I have a vector, but that vector has some metadata associated with it. And I want to do filtering based on it. Like give me the 10 vectors closest to this one where the price is less than 25 and the country is USA. You want right. that no, kind they, of a query. The example from MongoDB was like, I want yummy restaurants that have this ambience, but the filter is New York. And New York, you know, is just right. exactly like not a vector at and all. And that problem is super hard for the same reason we talked about earlier, which is you have this pre-arranged index. It doesn't know about these filters. And so you have this very often common problem, like in this case, right, with the restaurants of, okay, give me the hundred nearest restaurants to this, this ambiance. Okay, but now filter that to New York. It's like, well, none of the ones I found are in New York. So you have to like <laughs> overfetch. So it's right. like, okay, well, a hundred wasn't enough. So let me ask that thing for a thousand. Hopefully I get some mm-hmm. New York restaurants. Okay, well, that didn't work. Let me ask for 10,000. Maybe I'll get some New York restaurants. So Combining metadata filtering with vector search, this kind of sometimes called hybrid search, is I actually would go a step farther because you said it was sometimes effective. I actually think it's always better. Mm -hmm. There's very few situations where the product experience isn't better by having these kinds of guardrails. You know, like if I go on Amazon and I say, show me stuff under $25, I don't want to see something that's $35, right? Even if the vector says, I really love it, like, I mean, maybe, maybe that's a good experience, but it seems, it seems right. weird to me. Yeah, it seems like an upsell. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Trust us, you'll want to splurge on this. Right, exactly. <laughs> but I think this metadata filtering problem is, is not to be taken lightly. And I actually think this is important. I think that if you think of it as an afterthought for your system, it's not going to be good. It's not mm. an easy thing to bolt on later. It needs to be something you build with first principles. And again, so for Rockset, this is baked right into the heart. Like, so for us, a vector search index is just another index in our system. So you write full SQL, you, you mix and match your vectors in your SQL query, your conventional type SQL, like where location equals New York and you know price is three stars instead of five stars. And all those index participate together. And we, we have like our optimizer that will choose them appropriately. You get into clever situations where vector search is actually the wrong thing to do. Like, let me give you a really interesting example that will show you how databases can mess up really quickly. Imagine I have a database with a million restaurants, but there's only five in New York. Mm-hmm. And you said to me, hey, show me the coolest restaurants in New York. If I go do a vector search, it's actually pointless because there's only five. <laughs> right. So the correct way to run that query is to just do this simple SQL query that's like, hey, give me the five restaurants in New York and I'll, I'll rank them myself and show them to the user. I don't need any vectors for this. Right. I can bypass the vector entirely. So there's this hidden hard problem here about how do you optimize and use different kinds of indexes to get the, the queries you want. Again, this is yeah. all stuff that Rockset is built to do very efficiently. And these problems are very hard and they're very traditional database problems when, you, yeah. when viewed through this lens. I like that a lot. Ryan and I had an interesting conversation with some of the folks who were working on Overflow AI, similarly talking about how should we do search. And one of the things that they were saying is, right, like we always want it to be hybrid because there are a lot of instances, like somebody comes to me with mm-hmm. just three keywords where vector search is probably not going to give you a good answer. Or, you know, they're, they're dropping in the exact text of an era message, right? And they want to go mm-hmm. straight to that question. And so to me, the most interesting thing you said was like, how do you design it so it knows when to use which part? Like, so it's adaptive in the right yeah. way. The metadata problem seems like it's, it wants to do both, right? You want a sort of lexical search and a semantic search. So if you take this exact same discussion we've been having with restaurants, you apply it to tech search, it transliterates almost exactly. Mm-hmm. So like keywords or like substrings and you know, these, kind of, these kinds of searches with semantic search is exactly this 
the same metadata filtering plus vector kind of thing. A semantic mm-hmm. search is typically, it doesn't have to be, but typically powered by some kind of vector look, nearest neighbor lookup. And, but you're always going to want this. Well, okay, but I want a specific keyword or I want this phrase or these kinds of, that's exactly hybrid search and metadata filtering in a vector mm-hmm. context. Right. And it's interesting because if you go talk to database PhDs or people who've studied database for a long time, this is an extremely hard and well-studied problem in databases of, I have an inverted index, I have a column index, and now I have a vector search index and a fuzzy text index, how do I choose them? How do I reorder the operations? So like join reordering and all these other, these things that database optimizers have been studying for like 30 years at this point. Mm. You have a new player and they know how to do this. So if you go look up like cost-based optimizers, you will find pages and pages of scholarly work and every big database has one. So databases have a theory here. They know how to do this. They, they'll do things like selectivity estimates. So they'll, they'll apply the most stringent filters first so that later parts of the process will, will not do as much work. And so then they'll build selectivity estimators for your vector index. And they have all this, there's massive piles of theory. So again, I, I guess my point in all of this is this is a really hard problem itself is also a very interesting and hard problem. And it's one of those where this is exactly why bolting it on doesn't work. Mm. If you bolt it on, you've just wandered into like a massive database problem. Just You didn't even know. So like someone will wander in and be like, look, here's the database textbook. You know, that here's a grad class that you should have taken and like get to work. Because it's like you accidentally have wandered into a known hard problem. I guess if you want to give an example from any of the case studies that are out there or something you've worked on recently that you think really highlights kind of yeah. that sweet spot of that, you know, real-time data infrastructure and, you know, anomaly detection, I would love to hear it. Yeah. So let me give you a very simple example of something that I think highlights vectors and some of these hard problems we talked about and something that Roxette's very good at and that I'm proud of. Uh, there's a company called Whatnot. Whatnot does buying and selling. And they have a very straightforward problem. The, the right way to think of Whatnot is they're, they're doing live streams of buyers and sellers. So somebody is like literally showing off something on the internet. You can talk with them, interact with them, like a Twitch stream or anything like that. And But it's buying and selling, right? It's auctioning, but live. They have a very concrete, classic recommendation problem. Like you might be interested in looking at this streamer, right? For example, because mm. that's trying to match a buyer to a seller. That is a vector search problem, like born and bred, right? Show me things like this thing, recommendation system. But they have this very real-time component, right? Metadata filtering component where I need the stream to be online at the minute. Like it's not good to show me something that isn't online, that like defeats the whole purpose of the site. They have this very simple setup of do this vector recommendation, but also do the metadata filter where the user happens to be online at this moment. I mean, their their actual system is much more complicated than that, but that is the very heart of these hard problems all getting merged together. I need vector search, I need metadata filtering, and I need real-time updates. Like that is online, can't be like yesterday's data. It needs to be like now's data. So this is a very simple example of something where all these problems, these hard problems come together Mm. in a way that is super difficult to solve with almost anything. <laughs> this is the sweet spot for us. Like if, mm. if this ticks all the boxes, a perfect use case mm. for Roxa and one that works really well, that would be very difficult to make work with almost any other system. So that I'm proud of that one. And I think that highlights some of what we've been talking about. Cool. All right, everybody. It is that time of the show. We want to shout out a community member who came on and helped spread some knowledge a Lifeboat Badge awarded seven hours ago to user 7610 for helping to save a question from the Dustman of History 
C++ application terminates with 143 exit code. What does it mean? If you've ever wondered about that 143, as 30,000 other people have, well, then user 7610 has you covered. Congrats on your lifeboat badge and spreading some knowledge around Stack Overflow. As always, I am Ben Popper, Director of Content here at Stack Overflow. Hit me up on X at Ben Popper. Email us with questions or suggestions, podcast at Stack Overflow. And leave us a rating and a review if you like the show, because it really helps. I'm Ryan Donovan. I edit the blog here at Stack Overflow. You can find it at stackoverflow.blog. And you can slip onto my uh, DMs on X at rthordonovan. And I am Louis Brandy. I am from Roxet, roxet.com. And uh, thank you guys for having me. Of course. Thanks for coming on. All right, everybody. Thanks for listening. And we'll talk to you soon. Bye.